This morning's passage is John 4. We are going to continue kind of part two of the um, story of the Samaritan woman. And then we're going to really hone in on the verses that deal with the disciples. So I just want to give you a little bit of a recap. Jesus and his disciples had been baptizing in Jerusalem and in the region. And it was time to head back north to Galilee. And you travel through Samaria to do that. Or you have to go outside the Jordan and into um, other territories. So he goes through Samaria comes to a town called Sychar, and there he hangs out at a well where, uh, while his disciples go and find food in the town. And the woman comes out to get um, water, and she's doing this at noon. Remember the story? She's probably shame-filled, and so she's kind of doing it when nobody else would be there. Jesus asks her for a drink. She kind of gets on to him. And we talked about resisting. She resists this... Um, kind of concept. He tells her, if you knew who asked you for a drink, you would have asked him, Jesus, for living water. So she has this interaction, but she stays. She remains in the conversation. She continues to discuss. Finally, he says, um, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty. And she wants it. She wants that water. So she recognizes there's water, there's power in this, but she misunderstands it. She thinks it's going to be like this actual well, I guess, inside of her body. She doesn't know what's going on. She just knows she doesn't want to go experience shame anymore at that well. So she says, I want this water. And then Jesus does the famous, go get your husband. And he exposes her. And it's in that exposure that she responds. It's in that exposure that she realizes, I need a Savior. I need the Messiah. Jesus says in verse 26, I who speak to you am he. And so in that recognition, she responds um, with evangelism. She goes to the town. She goes and puts her jar down and goes into the town and starts talking about who Jesus is. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. But we're going to, last week I talked about when you come to a Bible narrative, that is a story in the Bible like this one, oftentimes we, we want to find out who are we in that story? Who do we most identify with? Last week, it was the woman at the well. We wanted to kind of track these process, this process of growth in the gospel. This week, we're going to look at the disciples. Uh, this is not their finest moment. And so it's comforting for us who struggle in our discipleship to be involved in evangelism. So let's look now together, uh, starting in verse 27. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, verse 31, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, 
and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there for two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. This is the word of the Lord. Father, in this story, uh, John the Evangelist records by the power of your spirit a difficult moment for the disciples, a moment that many of us relate with, where we get so caught up in the needs of this world, we forget to love the people right around us. And this morning as we come in, we all have so many things on our minds, things in our hearts, appetites that are pulling us in many directions, but I pray your spirit would show us the beauty of your love. Where last week we saw that you know us fully and you love us fully. And this week I pray we would see how recognizing that, resting in that, leads us to love those around us for your glory. Amen. I'm going to preface this illustration that many of you have heard this illustration. For those of you that haven't, you're in for a really interesting illustration. Okay. And it's going to start sad, but it's not sad. Uh, I remember when 9-11 happened, the, the footage was coming out, you're, you know, not only the moment that you're experiencing on TV, but then later videos that surfaced. And there was one video that I'll never forget, and it kind of went away after a few months, when it, you know, as the media began to cull their favorite videos. This one disappeared for good reason. And the reason is the camera was aimed at the first building with the first impact, and a crowd had gathered. So at that point... I think people thought it was like a Cessna. No one quite knew how big of an airline it was. And we definitely did not think we were under attack. And it's when the second plane enters the second building that everyone just immediately realizes this is serious, right? And so the crowd that had gathered and the camera that had been set up was just standing there watching the first tower and the disaster. But when the second one hits, that crowd, which you could barely see their heads, turn and run. And the camera is stationary. It's on a tripod. And as these heads get closer and closer and closer, there's one head coming right toward the camera that decides to take a bite out of a sandwich. And you realize he had purchased a sandwich, was in shock like everybody else, but when the second plane hit and he turns to run, for some reason he thought, I'm hungry. And now's the best time to eat my sandwich. Who knows what's going to happen with my sandwich? Um, you can kind of laugh at that. It was kind of crazy to think, how could some, I'm not judging this person. Okay, I am a little. Like, how do you have time to eat, like right now? Like right now, your body should be doing things where food is of the, like, I don't even remember what happened. I threw it as I ran. But he did not assess correctly, and he ate the sandwich. So the disciples are that man, and we are that man. Like Jesus is the Messiah, He's come to a town he's never been to to share his gospel and he sends them in to the town that is super ripe. Like everyone's like ready and all they do is they come back with food to eat. And that's what we do. I think often we miss evangelism because we're missing Jesus. So I want to kind of unpack evangelism this morning. It's a very uh, loaded topic for the Christians. Many of you, most of you, have had moments with evangelism. 
Uh, maybe you've been harmed by your particular strategies you've tried. Maybe you've been harmed by the ways people have tried to reach you. If you are here this morning and you're not a Christian, maybe you're like, oh my goodness, I'm being evangelized. But um, evangelism, I want you to know, is the language of the gospel. Like when you are living with Christ and you are receiving the gospel, you are always in evangelism mode. That's the argument I'm going to make this morning. It's not something you do. You don't add it to your life. It's a part of you at all times. So we're going to look at evangelism is required. Evangelism is shalom. Thirdly, evangelism is easy. That'll be the easiest point. Fourthly, evangelism is deadly. So here we go. Evangelism is required. You all, if you're a Christian, are required to be engaged in evangelism. So I just want to go around the room and hear your plans and kind of know what your process is, how you do it. You're required. Why do I say you're required to do evangelism? In the passage, um, the part we're going to hone in on is the disciples coming in and trying to get Jesus to eat and his response. But he says this, this interesting line, <clears throat> I have food to eat that you do not know about. And the food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. Right there, Jesus is equating God's will, which is also the work of God, same thing, he says two phrases, but it's one and the same, is to seek those God has sent him to, to rescue. So evangelism for Jesus is what he does, okay? Um, later, a few verses, he says to the disciples, I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. And so the assumption he has in his mind is when I sent you to town, I assumed you would come back with Christians, with converts, or people who are interested in who I am, and you did not. So why is it required? And we're going to have to talk about that in the next point a little bit more, but I just want us to buy into the fact that evangelism is something we do as we partner with Jesus. Right? When Jesus washes the disciples' feet and he resumes, he says, you know why I did this? So that you, you're not greater than your master, that you would go out and reach people, and share the gospel, i.e., love them, wash their feet. That's the metaphor for serving them. So evangelism is required. Now you're starting to kind of like, what's, what's this, what does this look like? How do I fit this into my schedule? So let's do this. Let's unpack what is evangelism for a moment. Um, I think probably we don't understand it, and that's often why we don't do it. I think most of us think of evangelism, like if you've been on an airplane lately, what do you do? First, you wonder, who am I going to sit by, right, the whole time? Is it them? Especially if you're on Southwest, are they going to choose this seat? Don't choose this seat. But when they finally sit down next to you, what's the next thought? Like, how fast can I get my earbuds in my ears? Like, and it's on. I'm not listening to you. But yet you wonder, should I strike up a conversation? Should I get to know this person? So with evangelism, I think we're kind of always thinking in terms of, words about Jesus in the moment that will lead them to Christ. And that is absolutely a good definition of evangelism, sharing the gospel. But I want you to know, if you just think of conversion as being a decision for Jesus, then it's going gonna, it's gonna to not go well, because you're going to start coming up with plans and methods of evangelism that are just technique-oriented, and you're going to have a, a pound, just a lot of weight of guilt. Should I, should I bring it up now? Should I bring it up now? And what I think is so beautiful about the woman at the well is for her to be evangelized was to have her entire life turned around. So point two is evangelism is shalom. 
Because shalom is eternal flourishing. Shalom is the way things were meant to be. Shalom is what we long for in the dry places. We long for in the Old Testament, you'll see you know, the, the, the desert to teem and spring with life and flourishing. So I want you to begin to think of evangelism as the gospel sweeping through your life. The woman who came to meet with Jesus at the well had a, just shame. That's what steered her to go at noon, remember. Most women would go in the morning as a group or in the evening when it was cooler. She came in the heat, hottest part of the day and she even says she wants the water so that she won't have to come back to the well ever again. So the question is, what changes in her, right? What happens? And the answer is she finds out that Jesus is setting her free. She finds out that she is no longer defined by her story, by her past, by her shame. Justification by faith is a doctrine we talk about a lot. And it's, it's the doctrine that really took Luther and sprung him in many ways to life, somewhat sparking the Reformation. And what the doctrine teaches is this, that you're completely made righteous because of Christ's righteousness. Right? You're, it's been imputed to you. It's credited, credited to you as righteousness. I was thinking about how to explain that. Uh, often we think, well, am I actually righteous? And the answer is, you're personally not righteous because of Christ's imputed righteousness, although the Spirit is also given and you're adopted, but you're credited as righteousness. Now, here's an illustration. Two people walk up, and they're standing in front of you, and you get all of one of their money, okay? One of them is going to be, their money is going to be your money. So you say, empty your pockets, the first one empties it out and has a $100 bill. The second one has a $5 bill. Who do, you, who do you want? Whose money do you want? You can answer, anyone. You, it's a trick. You feel the trick, don't you? The first one's last name is Smith, and the second one, sorry guys, and the second one's last name is Rockefeller. I don't care that the Rockefeller only had a $5 bill. I want what the bank says he's worth. I wouldn't want what's actually physically on his person. I would take the money that's in his bank. Credited to you means Jesus' righteousness is your credit. You are worth his righteousness, whether you have that on your person or not. This woman, for the first time in her life, if you read verses 16 to 26, she's getting into this like, well, we worship here, and you all worship in Jerusalem, but our fathers tell us, this is really important, but you guys really think it's important to be there. And Jesus says, yeah, it is. Up until now, that was very, very important. But now the time has come where that is obsolete. Worship is by spirit and truth, which means the Holy Spirit will come onto your person applying all of the benefits of Jesus and your heart is set free. And she got it. She heard go get your husband, and she felt shame, but she needed to know something before she could embrace that exposure. She needed to know that there is actually this savior for her soul based on his righteousness. And when she learned that, she could actually accept the fact that she had been broken and was now revived, and she springs to action, and it changes things. Um, I was trying to find this story. I did find it. It's not a really long story, but Jack Miller tells it in Sonship. 
1770, there's a man named William Romaine. And Jack says this, in his childlike faith, he was part of, I think, parliament, and they were debating how to um, deal with the, just the overwhelming number of murderers and robbers and the prison system. So he proposes a pamphlet on the gospel. Like, imagine if you're on C-SPAN or some Oklahoma version, and you see me or a pastor that you know, like, stand up to the, all the lawmakers, I have an idea, let's pass out a gospel tract. You would, la- like, you would kind of wince, wouldn't you? You would sort of think, I mean, come on. That's, that's sweet, Ryan. That's, yes, good job, Ryan. Now you'd send me out and get back to deliberation. The only answer to sin, the only answer to murder, the only answer to robbery is Jesus. That's it. And the reason is Jesus defines you. When you are a Christian, you are now defined by the righteousness of Christ. Do you believe that? Is that who you are? Is that what you rest in? That will change your life. That reality will change your approach to everything you do. Is that what you rest in? So, thirdly, with that in mind, evangelism is easy. Right? Evangelism is very easy. In fact, I love this scene. It's somewhat comical. Um, If if there's ever going to be an evangelistic team similar to SEAL Team 6, it's going to be the apostles, correct? Like, if I said to you, who's your you know, favorite, ba- put together the best basketball team of all time, you know, Jordan, LeBron, right? Put together the greatest evangelist team ever, John. I would choose John that wrote this letter, the apostle. I'd do, I would choose Peter. Who would choose Peter with me? Okay, I would choose the people in this story. Okay, that's who you would choose. And I would say next, go into this town and do your thing. And they go into town and they start knocking on doors and talking and having. How many converts did they find? Like zero. And then they come back with food um, and they pass this woman. It's kind of like, you're talking to her, you know, what's going on? And she's just running back to town. And this woman is like the one person in town that everyone basically has the permission to not like her. And she just kind of walks in town and starts saying, hey, I think I found the Christ. He told me about my whole life. And what do they do? They went out of town and were coming to him. Right? They came out in droves. In fact, they kind of, this conversation, meanwhile, verse 31, that's happening, um, they're about to be interrupted by the people who are like, we need the Messiah. We need Christ. What's the point? Look at verse 31. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. In other words, the ripeness of the people had nothing to do with how good of an evangelist you are. God had done the work. One of RUF's presuppositions that is also this church's presupposition is that when you go into a region, a campus, a town, any kind of situation, the first thing you know is God is already working. We are going to go in and reap things that we did not sow, right? Paul in 1 Corinthians 3 says, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you would believe. So the Corinthians are the recipients of this, of this gift. And he says, As the Lord assigned to each, I planted, that's Paul, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. 
So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives growth. Um, A lot of people think the doctrine of predestination and God's sovereignty would squelch evangelism. It's led to some of the greatest revivals of all time. We have the we have the Reformation, we have the Great Awakening, Whitfield and Edwards believe that God is sovereign. And let me just tell you that it's a lot easier to share the gospel if it's not up to you. I can't change your heart. So I will simply share the gospel and see what the Lord is doing. And then let me add for just a moment that evangelism is more than just sharing the gospel. Uh, Jaron Bars wrote a beautiful book which is titled, what I should have titled this sermon, uh, The Heart of Evangelism. Jaron Bars is at Covenant Seminary, and he really talks a lot. In fact, the assignment we had in his class was, one, get to know non-Christians. Like, how many non-Christians do you know? I think a lot of us at this church are, do a good job in that. I'm, not being, I'm very serious. We do a great job of being in our community and of knowing non-Christians. I think where we could possibly stretch it a little bit is praying and realizing we're on this mission and longing for avenues to to reach people. But the assignment was write a letter to a non-Christian. You don't have to deliver it, but you have to write the letter. And here's his whole, like, he goes to um, the Mars Hill Acts where where Paul stands up and, and shares the gospel in language that they understood. And his point is you have to talk to people where they are. And so the letter, what made it so hard is you had to find an area of commonality. So you choose a person, you have to get to know the person, and you have to have some place where you're friends, where you share life together, where you have a common theme. And then in the letter, share the gospel through that. And then if you wanted to deliver the, the letter, I did not deliver my letter uh, for, for probably good reasons. Um, probably wasn't written well. I think I got a B. You don't turn into B. I got a B on this. Did it convert you? Uh, actually, it was a family member, and so there's more to that story. But, but the point is, if God is at work and we are loving people, evangelism is easy. Um, I didn't ask Grayson for permission for this illustration. It's not embarrassing at all. Just give me a few moments. It is a Cutco illustration, but it's not about you. He told me, I'm going to butcher the story, but he told me there was a, a famous like huge sale of Cutco knives, like one sale was just huge by a, by a fraternity person who, um, okay, I'm going to ruin this, aren't I? It's okay. You just want to come tell it? I'll finish. <laughs> so here's the story. Here's a guy selling Cutco knives who is best friends with a wealthy, wealthy family and his dad, and the dad has houses all over like the East Coast, and he's thinking, if I sell that person a set of Cutco for every one of those homes, this would be like, I don't know how many sets. Okay, it's a lot of sets. I'll make a lot of commission, okay. But he waits and he processes and he thinks about how to, and then meanwhile, a fraternity brother who doesn't really know the person at all sets the appointment gets the sell. Now, that's sad. And so the, their, their training is don't wait. My point is this, when people are ready and Jesus is pressing on them, you don't have to have perfect words, perfect avenues, perfect, you simply go in and take the opportunity to talk and share the gospel. Why is that so hard? I'll tell you why. Our last point is that evangelism is deadly. Okay, it's deadly. Uh, I think the thing that we haven't talked a lot about yet other than the opening illustration is this food issue. Jesus says, I have food to eat that you do not know. 
And then he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus likes food. I want you to understand me. Jesus ate food, right? He still eats food. And while he was on earth, he was known as one who came eating and drinking. But he didn't worship food like we do. Food is a very interesting, tricky thing because uh, it's not simply a metaphor. It's kind of like the metaphor. Like I think God made eating to point to how we should relate to him, that we are in union with Christ and he comes into us and he says, I'm the bread of life. And a few chapters later, like you need sustenance. I am that sustenance. Oh, and by the way, you can have a hamburger because you're hungry. And so we reverse that. I need a hamburger. I'm hungry. Oh, you know, Jesus is also kind of something I feast on sometimes. We kind of reverse it. When I was a child, I think we ate out um, at fast food joints like once a week seemed to be the average. I I may have just made that up, but that's what it feels like. So let's just act like that's a study. Now, I bet for most of us in this room, most of us, I bet 80% of this room eats out once a day. And I bet 60% eat out sometimes twice a day, like within a week. Like we eat out. Food is just, get it to me. I'm hungry. Yet Jesus begins his ministry with a 40-day fast. He's saying food is important, but it's not everything, right? My food is to do the will of my Father. And also, um, when you're engaged in exciting things, you don't get hungry. Have you all ever noticed that? That's why I use that illustration. Like you would think this is all happening. I lost my appetite, right? Or if I'm about to perform like an athletic event or, or do something important, like your body uses the, I don't know how it all works physiologically, but the blood needs to go other places and you aren't hungry. And so I think Jesus is sitting here aware of the fact that this woman has just been converted and is on a mission that his SEAL Team 6 failed at and they're all gonna come back to him and he's excited. And they bring food and he's like, I'm good. He doesn't shame them. He just simply says, I'm okay. But I will say for them, they probably need to learn from him that sometimes it's okay to miss a meal. Sometimes it's okay to turn away your appetite. It's okay to love other people well. So how do you die? The woman died. The woman at the well died. If you are in Christ, you have died. That's that's the gospel message. When Jesus died, we died with him. When Jesus rose, we rose with him. And the problem for us is that we often try to go back and live as if that's not true. Paul says it in Galatians. It's for freedom that you've been set free. Yet we, are the chains are off, the prison door is open, and we cower in that prison. I need three meals a day. I need my house to look a certain way. I don't want people to ever reject me. What is your prison? I can't go out. What if, you know, and we're just terrified. And Paul in Galatians is like, come out. Jesus is your identity. No one can harm you. You have died and you have risen and there's nothing that can separate you from the love of Christ and we sit in our prison. Yeah, I know, but I mean, what if I lose my job? What if I say that, send that text and I'm rejected? I just, what if I do it? You know, and that's the prison we live in. You have to die to that. Um, what are you clinging to for your life? Jesus is showing us in this story, he's juxtaposing the tw- these apostles, 
11 of which go on, 10 of which go on and die martyred deaths. One, John, who we don't know how John passed away, but he was um, exiled. They end up being the super evangelists, right? And in chapter one, we see them seeing Jesus as the Messiah. They understood it. This is just a weak moment. And I think for us, we get in those weak moments. So let's get kind of practical. How can we, in our weaknesses where we don't sense ourselves desiring to share the good news of Christ, what do we do? Um, the first thing we do, um, well, let me just, I'm going to, Psalm 1, Shane preached on a Wednesday night at RUF, did a phenomenal job. And I want to pick up on one word, one concept from that sermon. We're, we're in, the, uh, in Psalm 1, we're told, you know, blessed is the man who meditates on the law. And, you know, I remember thinking, I had preached on that years ago, thinking, they know the law, they know the Ten Commandments. It's, meditating isn't just reminding yourself but it's figuring out how are you going to apply Christ in your daily life. And so what, what Shane talked about was um, the word for meditate is the same word in Psalm 2, the nation's plot in vain. That's the same word. So meditating has a, has a sense of plotting. Only rather than doing it in vain, the Christian rolls out the map of our life and we plot for Christ. And we look for all of the ways that we're living as those who have not died and raised. We're looking for those ways and we're repenting of those ways. Said another way, we need to every day, like this woman, go back to our story, go back to our encounter with Jesus and freshly grasp his love for us, which will free us to then go out and share the good news wherever we would go. We were watching a movie this, this Friday night. I highly recommend it, The Help. Many of you have seen The Help. It's so wonderful. So we watched it um, again with our kids on Friday night. The, the Help is a story that takes place in Jackson, Mississippi, 1962. Um, highly racial context where you have uh, white, southern white women who employ uh, poor African-American women from the town to come in and not just cook and clean, but to raise their children. And they do a beautiful job. Meanwhile, in that setting, the white women really are racist and they're mean and they have, it's, it's, it's really sad. But one woman comes in um, who graduated from Old Miss, but she wants to write a book about these women. And so The Help is the title of her book that she writes and it's their stories and their experiences of what it's like daily to raise another person's child while my, ch my child's at home. And one of the main characters is Abilene. And there's a scene with Abilene and this little girl, and I, many of you have heard this but, or seen it. And the little girl's one of the girls she's raising, like she's giving her life to this girl. And every morning, here's how they begin their morning ritual. She comes in, she picks the girl, puts her in her lap, and she says, you is kind, you is smart, you is important. And then the little girl says it with her. I is kind, I is smart, I am important. I is important. And then I was watching this again. The little girl leans in and puts her fingers on Abilene's face. And Abilene's just tearing up because she is letting that little girl know, even though your parents don't tell you the truth, here is the truth. You is kind. You is smart. You is important. Later in the movie, 
what the mom spanks the girl for a completely wrong reason. And the girl's bawling. And it's out, kind of outdoors. And Abelene runs up to her and puts her on her lap and does it again. And the girl's bawling. And she's like, you is kind. You is smart. You is important. That changes that life. That changes your life. This world, this world is that parent. This world is telling you you're nothing. You're nobody. You've had five marriages. You're useless. You're worthless. And maybe your response to that is to believe it. Or maybe your response is to overcompensate and prove it wrong. But both ways are death. The gospel says, no, no, no. The heavenly father who made you and loves you is looking you in the eyes and saying, you is kind. You is smart. You is important. Do you believe that? Daily, go to the gospel, believe that truth, plot that out on your map, and you will engage in evangelism without even knowing it. Let's pray. Jesus, let us be like that woman, seeing you as the Messiah, not just a rabbi who needs food, but the Messiah, the lover of our souls. Lord, let us see our heavenly Father different. Father, I confess I often struggle probably with my own life here, my own story, to, to see you as beautiful as you are. But I can, I can promise I think all of us, when we see you face to face, will be amazed at how little we understood your love. But we thank you that there, are, there is so much room for growth, that until glory, until you return, Jesus, we have this room for growth to further grasp how high and, and deep is the love of Christ, that we would be moved to just rest in you, to feel your arms around us, and be compelled to love those in our midst. Give us that power through your spirit. Let this meal we are about to take, let this service revive us. Let us not think about just how we're going to survive or what food we're going to eat after church, but whom can we love? Whom can we go toward? Whom can we share the gospel with or just precursor to that love and do the labor for someone else to share the gospel. Let us be in that process. Let everything we do, let us be in evangelism mode. Not out of duty, not that that's wrong. Not out of obligation, though that's not wrong, but out of a sense of response to your love. Let that drive us for your glory. Amen.